Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of The Christian Skeptic. I am joined today by a very special guest. Her name is Sharon Angel. She hosts the podcast, The Courage to Identify. Sharon, welcome to The Christian Skeptic. Thank you. It's good to be here. So you have a pretty unique background and kind of journey as to what got you where you are today. And for those listeners that are not familiar with your podcast and don't know anything about you, what's something we should know about you? Tell me a little bit about your background. Well, I am the daughter of Christian evangelists. My grandparents uh, were evangelists. My parents are now evangelists. My brother, sister, they're all in the ministry space. So very well versed in the Christian religion, attended so many mission trips growing up and used to be a child host. So hosting television shows back in India and now focused on how can I build my relationship with Christ and also express that freedom to those I encounter. Um, Went through a very hard journey to kind of detox from the institutionalized religion, performative religion. Um, I'm happy to say that I'm in a better place now, a place of peace and freedom where I can advocate for the justice of others. And yeah, now my relationship and my faith is much stronger and I'm happy to talk about that today. Great. So India, you lived in India for a while or you were born in India? I was born and raised in India. Okay. Um, when I was there till high school and then I moved to Canada for about three, three and a half years to start my bachelor's. Um, almost thought that that was going to be my forever home. But after that, you know, missionary kids, uh, parents want you to move. So uh, my dad came and said that we have to move to America, which I was very hesitant about because the transfer from India to Canada, the education system, lifestyle, everything was different. And after three and a half years of being in Canada, you know, the change um, was super difficult. And I had thought, okay, that's where I'm going to be, found roots and everything. And right when I was thinking that I was going to be stable in life, um, it was almost like all my roots were shaken and I had to move. So through a huge fit, which I don't tend to do, and I was like, you always tell us to move and you say, God wants us to move. You know, this is not fair. What am I supposed to do with my education, my career, everything that I've built, all my friendships, relationships? Are you, do you think I'm supposed to just throw it away huge, through, fit, uh, through a huge fit? Um, but I did move um, to the States to finish my bachelor's in Texas. Um, chose to stick with media and uh cinemat- cinematography because that that has always been my passion um finished my bachelor's in broadcast communication worked um at a broadcast company after that a t- uh, television network as a producer 
And then I also got my master's in film and cinematography, made a documentary, um, and that was kind of the opening, the door toward the rest of my life, my career. So I have found my roots now in the US, in California. I have my own production company, but I do a lot of advocacy work for women and children to talk about um, what is their human rights and how can we um, step into the freedom of thought, conscience, and belief. Um, so happy to be a voice for the Indian American community here and navigate religion and culture with all of those human rights. Okay, so I'm really glad you brought that up because listening to your podcast, that was something that interested me. You had an episode, um, it was titled, and I should, I should have written this down, but it was titled, It's a Girl... Uh, I'm sorry, it's a girl. I'm sorry, it's a girl. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. Where you talk about how the Indian culture and the Chinese culture a little bit. And so we have two cultures now that are, you know, heavily influenced by Hinduism, uh, which is also something I want to kind of talk about your move from a culture heavily influenced by Hinduism. And I don't, I'm not too familiar with Indian culture, but I believe Taoism as well is pretty prevalent out there. Um, yeah, a little bit of Buddhism and Muslim. Taoism, not that much, at least okay. this, these past couple years. But yes, Hinduism. So yeah, so I wanted, I wanted to get to that here in a little bit of your experience moving from a culture heavily influenced by Hinduism to the West. You're talking Canada, America, which is heavily influenced by Judeo-Christian ethics. Um, but you, you brought up the women's rights thing and your episode on I'm sorry it's a girl and the abortion practices of women female children in that culture, uh, that really touched a, a nerve with you. Tell me a little bit about that. So for me personally, my parents have never kind of pushed me aside or treated me as you're a girl, so you're a liability. Um, but in many ways, especially growing up in front of the camera, I started hosting when I was 10 years old. So my brother would also host television shows with me. and. 10 years old, I really didn't know the workings of production per se. But then as I grew older, 14, 15, I had ideas. I had things that I wanted to bring to the, to the television world in the Christian space. But I quickly saw that my ideas, my thoughts would be shut down, whereas with my brother, it would be encouraged. Now, I don't know if they were good or bad, but just the invite of let's let me encourage your thoughts and let me not encourage your thoughts. I think now thinking about it, um, I am positive that it's because I was female and that influences the culture. That influence comes from the culture itself because um, men are celebrated with the, with the woman when she gets married or when she's given off to be married. Um, there's a dowry that has to be given as she um, gets married. All of these cultural traditions, these rituals that has to be done because the woman is a liability. And that comes from the cultural idea that women, right from when they are born to when they have their uh, first period to when they get married to when they bear a child, they're always a liability because either you're shelling out money or in the name of protecting them from society, uh, you're spending a lot of time and energy compared to when you're raising a male child. And then also when they're giving birth to children, there is a demand that the women have to bear 
um, a male child, you would think that now, because India is becoming so modern and so advanced, those thoughts and those ideologies would decrease in the modern society. But in many ways, they are only being reinforced, which is very sad because we have education, we have women working in uh, the tech space and many industries. But when they come home, they have these restrictions to say that because you're a woman, you always will be, you know, when you get married, you have to bear a child. So you have to take care of a family. You are the source of emotional care and physical care. So men are more available for promotions, to go on trips, to go on, um, you know, work-related things, whereas women, they have to always be at home. So they're always treated as subpar, subhuman, um, but I always work and I always try to say that we are in a generation, we are in a, in a modern world where we cannot have a life without two incomes uh, to have a, um, a peaceful family, a successful family, to support family, to support children, to have a decent life. The male and the female of the family uh, needs to bring an income. Sometimes we end up working two jobs, we end up working three jobs. But to say that, oh, I will allow her to go to work, but I will not allow her to have dreams of her own, opinions of her own, is such a age-old thought that needs to be changed. It's a mindset change and it's a mindset sh um, mindset shift. Um, and I think a lot of that is cultural and is also emphasized by religion as well, which is very sad. Yeah, definitely. And I want to touch on that in a second, but I think um, given your transition now to Canada and then America, how much of that do you see here? Because that's often a critique, and I don't want to get too political because that's not what this podcast is about, but that is a critique that's thrown around in the political sphere that we still live in an oppressive patriarchy here in the West. So what's your experience in that? Do we still live in an oppressive patriarchy here in the West? I think we do. I think we do. I see okay. um, similar aspects of patriarchy here as well. Um, maybe not as much on the cultural sense, because when women here, we have the independence, the financial independence, the um, stability to say, if I want to be free, I can work toward it and be free, whereas I think in the Eastern culture, there are more um, of those cultural strongholds or there those chains. Um, the gossip and the jealousy that refrains women from um, setting themselves free to be independent, to go pursue their dreams. But at the end of the day, it is a mindset of a woman. If she wants to be, be free, she can be free. Uh, but I do see that in the Western culture here in America, uh, because at the end of the day, if the legal systems, the laws don't give way for women to pursue their dreams, then it becomes difficult in many ways. And I also see that religion enforces the stereotypical thought that women are subpar, they always have to serve the man. Um, and when it's not a choice of the woman to be a certain type of wife or be a certain type of woman in the family, then there's a clash of what about my dreams? They turn into bitter individ individuals 
you know, after they're 50 or 60, just serving the children or living through the lives of their children. And that can become a clash because they never get to live a life of their own, um, work on their dreams, whether it's career in, um, in religion or whatever ways that's possible, they never get to live their lives. And that's when they start suppressing or overprotecting their children to say, you have to be like this, you have to walk this way because that's how I was raised, that's how I did it. And that that suppression just continues over generations. Um, so yes, there is a patriarchy. Yes, I see that in the Eastern culture, but also the Western culture. And I think religion, the Christian religion does reinforce that. Interesting. I see your point on there being a patriarchy. I don't think it's oppressive though. So I'm, I'm curious and I'm just asking out of curiosity because I'm no legal expert, but you mentioned the laws here in the West um, help the patriarchy to oppress women. In what, in what ways or what laws specifically um, are oppressive towards women? One thing is, so when I talk, when I think about the institution or the patriarchy, one thing is for the men to be following a certain aspect of um, the constitution, which was relevant maybe years ago when the constitution was written. But it's another thing for people to allow that to happen, um, the people around them. So for example, when uh, women were allowed to open bank accounts and have credit cards, it was um, it has been great for women to stand on their own legs uh, and to be independent. Let's say they got divorced and, that they, and let's say they are single moms, they can't always be depending on a male counterpart to support th themselves and their family. So seeing that the US um, allows women to have their own bank accounts and have their own credit cards. Many other Eastern cultures do that as well because they see that when women advance in society, society advances as well. Uh, but there are certain things as to domestic violence. When um, a woman is violated, the perpetrator usually gets a less number of sentence, less amount of sentence. And if he is white male or if he is male in general, his sentence is like 120 days, sometimes two weeks, sometimes, um, you know, much less than what he deserves. So when you speak to women who are violated physically, emotionally, um, mentally, they will say that this is something that I carry for the rest of my life. But the man or the person who perpetrated me gets away with serving a sentence for just 120 days or uh, six months, and then he gets to move on to his life. So I think laws in that way need to help the victim or the survivor um, want to hear the story of what actually happened and also if there if there is no legal system or if there's no policy or if there's no um, act that the lawyers the people representing them can fight for uh, then it becomes difficult for the survivor to move on for the vic victim to move on um, get her justice and also heal in a way so i think in that ways advancements can be made and though and there are many advocates activists working for that but I think it also depends largely on society 
to push that responsibility or push that need to uh, want certain laws, want certain policies. Um, so a, a, a big aspect of that largely falls on the actions of society as well. Yeah, that's fair. I, but I think it goes both ways, though, too. Uh, I just pulled up the CDC statistics and uh, 30% of women report being in domestic violence relationships, but 25% of men do as well. And so I think, and I think mm -hmm. we're seeing a little bit of this, and I'm not following this by any degree, but the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial that's currently going on, again, I'm not following it. <laughs> I just see little mm -hmm. tidbits here and there. Uh, but I do know that there is kind of the overarching premise of she was abusing him, not him abusing her, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. um, I don't think that, that, that the flaws in the legal system, though, are necessarily oppressive towards women here. And why I'm making this case, because I think this does spill into the religious aspect uh, a little bit as well. So maybe we can move off the legal because you're, you're probably about to totally outwit me on this area because, again, I am no legal expert <laughs> at all in this. Um, but the point I, I am making is I don't see that the legal system is outright oppressive towards women. Um, I, I, I will grant the argument from a patriarchy, but that's also kind of a... Is it a cause and effect argument or a cause and grounds argument, right? Because all of society has been, for the most part, patriarch patriarchal, I guess is probably how you say it, for all of history, right? And so, well, then then you can kind of, it's almost like a chicken and egg thing, right? And, and I'm not saying I have this all figured mm -hmm. out, but I'm just saying when I observe this, this is kind of what I see is all of society for most of history or most societies for most of history, I guess I should say, have this kind of patriarchy set up to them we're kind of in this new experiment where, and I think it's a Judeo-Christian experiment is what it is, because I think the value comes from that men and women are made in the image of God. And the Bible asserts that and not other, most other religions don't assert that, right? There's many religions, especially some of the Eastern religions where woman is a curse on man. But because we have this Judeo-Christian background, women are equal to men because both are made in the image of God. And so there's that Imago Dei aspect that I think shapes our, our legal system here in the West. And well, then you have to wonder, did we shape our legal system to be oppressive to women and patriarchal? Or has all of society always been that way? And we're currently trying to reshape society and the legal system to be more of the Imago Dei men and women are made of the image of God. And then it's like, well, how quickly can that happen? You know, how quickly can you turn an aircraft carrier of a, of a culture, which is the West, um, with all of our political discourse and different views? And yeah, I don't know, it's making my head spin just thinking about it. But, um, but I, I don't know that I agree with you that, that the West is oppressive towards women. I agree with you that there's a patriarchy set up, but I don't know that it's there on purpose. I don't think it's on purpose, um, but I do think that those who reported domestic violence crimes against uh, themselves were women. So at least when you know these cases, these reports were made. Uh, now, obviously, you know men also get violated. Um, I don't disagree with that, but. If there is no like the reporting system, right? If if there is no, um, I don't I don't know the legal term for this, but if if you can't report a certain case, uh, to say this is exactly what happened, and if prosecutors don't have exact uh, verbiage to uh, 
fight for the victim in the courts, then it becomes difficult for the victim and the survivor to get justice, right? Then comes, uh, you have to create a false case or you have to create uh, a diversion as to, okay, this happened, so we need to get justice for this aspect. But then like, you're not addressing the core aspect of what happened to the victim. So yes, um, it happens to both men and women, but whoever the perpetrator is, they need to serve their sentence. And um, it has to come from the angle of what did the victim go through? What did the survivor go through? And, that get, and then get justice for the victim and survivor rather than of course, whoever did the wrong thing, whoever did, whoever uh, was a perpetrator, I think they should be reintegrated into society after they have served their sentence, after they have served their time, after they have come to a mental, emotional place of stability, because that's rest restorative justice, and that's Judeo-Christian princi Christian principles as well, right? Uh, there is life. Absolutely. There is second chance for anybody who does evil, anybody who does wrong. But then when it comes to the justice system, when we live in a society, when we live in a community, then we should also be looking at, uh, you know, these victims who have to live their life in shame and guilt. Uh, when this person gets to serve, you know, three months and then is out and he gets to live his own life, who knows if he's going to do it again? Who knows if she's going to do it again? Um, so it's harmful not only to that victim and survivor, but it's also harmful to somebody else who that person might do, do it again to um, because he has not or she has not served uh, their time. So I think it's a cycle. It is There are several aspects to it, and I think it will take years to perfect. I'm, and I'm not even sure if you can perfect um, this type of restorative justice because our society is evolving fast, modern technology. Um, Cybercrime was never a thing 20 years ago. Now it's so easy to attack people online. Um, and who knows with the advancement of Bitcoin and all of that technology, who knows what is gonna happen. So I think the government and the ecosystem should be able to kind of lead that um, justice system and I think there is a gap there. Um, so, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, no argument there at all. I think uh, you mentioned perfecting it. In some ways, I think we're moving the opposite direction of perfection with our legal system. Um, and, and really, again, I'm not a legal expert, but my observation of the system is I think the people that hurt the most in the legal system is kids, especially when violent and... Um, you know, all sorts of criminals are, like you said, being released back into society uh, too early or serving too short of a sentence or the justice system fails in some way, it hurts their kids. Because while men and women have somewhat of a voice mm. in the social sphere, kids don't have any right now, you know, and, and I think they're quickly, quickly losing it. And so I guess we'll transition there onto mm. the religious side, because I know you have a lot to say about it. Um, and I want to hear what you have to say, because I, I think you have some good insight here. Uh, but I've been playing with this theory about this, and so I want to run this by you and kind of see what you think about it. Um, on the subject of pantheistic religions, one of the oldest pantheistic religions is the Mesopotamian religion. 
which is especially the Mesopotamian creation story. And so, and I've been kind of mulling over the Genesis creation story and comparing this lately, but in the Mesopotamian creation story, uh, there is this god, Marduk, who kills the goddess Tiamat, who was the uh, kind of wicked witch of all the gods, if you will, um, kind of the evil queen who was ruling over the realm of the gods. And um, she's kind of represented by like a monster or some kind of like dragon looking thing. And so Marduk kind of stands up as this god who can, uh, who is strong, who is knowledgeable and can see everything. And he rises up uh, among all the other gods and says, I'll kill Tiamat if you all submit to me afterwards and make me king of the gods. And so he does, he kills Tiamat, and then he opens her up, and from her remains, he creates the known world, is how the legend goes, right? And it's very different, obviously, from the Genesis story, in which the Genesis story, God speaks into the void of voids, right, and creates things, and and he creates things for six days, and everything he creates is good, and then he creates man and says it's very good, right? And so the reason I've been playing with that is because in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is one of Frederick Nietzsche's uh, works, he has this parable of the death of God and this madman's running around and trying to find God until someone finally grabs him and says, don't you, don't you know, we've killed God, right? And it's this kind of philosophy that, and he was spot on when he said it because he was looking at the Western culture and, you know, he was around in the late 1800s in Germany. And of course he predicted the totalitarian uh, movements and atheistic waves that would just rock Europe and Russia to the core decades later, right? Obviously, we know communism and, and the Nazi regime are responsible for millions and millions of deaths. But kind of the underlying philosophy in that is similar to the Mesopotamian creation story. Because what Nietzsche says is we've killed God. What we're doing is we're trying to kill Christianity. But then we're also trying to use it, kind of like Marduk did with Tiamat. We kill God, and then we construct society out of his remains. And so that's kind of the idea I've been playing around with is I think that that's where we're headed here in Western culture, right? I think, and even with kind of this like rebirth of spirituality that a lot of people have, it's I think we were trying to kill the Christian God, but then make a society that has Christian values, uh, especially the value of compassion and especially the value of um, lifting up the lowest members of society, right? Which is a is a very, very Christian uh, value, you know? Mm. And so that's kind of the idea I've been playing around with. I guess, what are your thoughts on that? As far as moving from India, the culture you were in, coming to America, advocating for women's rights. <laughs> I know I'm asking a very big question right now. Yeah, the floor is yours. Okay, you've given me a lot there. Um, it's That's very interesting about the Mesopotamian um beginning um i've never heard i've never heard that before but looking at america right now um i think it's very true i'm kind of thinking out loud here that's what this podcast is for go for it (laughs) (laughs) um it's very true that most people are trying to redefine spirituality or redefine themselves by associating themselves to a certain aspect of spirituality, both religious and non-religious. Let me give you a little bit of my example per se, a little bit of my background as well. I did grow up in that 
you know, PK atmosphere. For me, it was evangelist uh, kid. So I didn't really grow up in the church or anything, but um, listened to thousands and thousands of messages, um, attended so many events, went on so many mission trips. So after a certain point, it just becomes redundant, right? You go on stage, you go sing, you go do worship. Um, it all becomes same. And I think to be very fair, honest and transparent, I lost my loyalty to Christ and that kind of turned into loyalty to people, the um, schedule, agenda, how things must run. So that's why I think moving to a different country kind of set me free. It's now like this an ocean of things that I can, you know, like dive into, pick and choose, leave. And then I could come out of come out as a completely different person. And that's fine because I have the space to do that. Right. Um, I understand many people don't have that, but I had that privilege and I didn't want to just take it for granted. But it was scary. It was scary Um, because who knows who I'm going to come out as. Um, But that has been wonderful because that kind of takes away it, it took away like it kind of like stripped me from this performative religion, these rules, these traditions, these rituals that um, I had to do because I was a child of these evangelists, because I'm an Indian Christian woman, um, because I'm a girl um, in this country. It stripped me from all of these must do and should do things to force me to have a relationship with Christ because I knew at that point that if I did not have a relationship with God, um, then I am just going to sink and become this blob of nothing. Um, And I don't know where that came from. And I think that now trying to think about it, that was my gut feeling. That was my conscience because um, that was the core of who I was. And that was one thing that I could not give up. Now, on top of that, were all of these performative layers? Yes. So my biggest thing was to kind of distance myself, divorce myself from all of these uh, rituals, traditions, culture that was hurting me uh, or blocking me, stopping me from finding who this God is, who this creator is. Who is this God who says, I will neither slumber nor sleep? Who is this God who says that I will renew your mind? What does that mean? What does rebirth mean? What does salvation mean? I had to kind of go into all of that and find out for myself. And then coming out of all of that now, I don't find the need to go to a certain institution, to a certain place of worship every week. That doesn't, that that's not what defines my faith. Um, I don't need to like perform in front of an audience. I don't I don't find the need to be a certain person in front of a large, large audience because at the end of the day, I'm not even serving Christ uh, with that. So, but in, in many ways I've become confident. I've become, I feel like I've become closer with God and I understand God in, a much more larger way and in a much more simpler way, uh, which I think every everybody must have. So the downfall of that is also I see the negative parts of the religion. Um, I see that reading the Old Testament, um, I think the Bible is not PG. The Bible is not PG the way that <laughs> I was raised to read or the way that I was raised to 
see the Bible as or see the work of the Bible as the Old Testament is so violent and that is all, you know, it could, it's also a reflection of our God, you know, like when you say he's a jealous God, I'm like, yes, he is. And then you come to the New Testament with Jesus is like, he's a God of grace, but then the apostles, you know, the letters from Paul um, kind of re... Which there's a lot of violence there too. Mm -hmm. God kills his son in the first four books of the New Testament. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. And then there is that, there is that kind of re-institutionalizing re the faith of uh, brothers when you go to church, when you go to the place of worship, observe these things. Uh, treat women this way, treat slaves this way, treat your children this way. Um, and um, and then after the New Testament today, we're living in the time of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? So what things do we take in? What things do we kind of not observe is the question that each one of us has when we kind of dive deep into this Creator God, Yahweh, Jesus the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. And I think there's so much disparity in the Christian religion. Like, well, my biggest question is, why are there so many denominations when there is, you know, just one God and the Trinity? And it makes sense because we all see God in a different way. We all see God in um, so many different ways. But then do we mutually respect each other's perspective? Do we mutually agree to disagree with each other's perspective? And I think that's lacking in the Christian world, at least in my experience, because um, Christian hurt is real. You know, church hurt is real. When uh, society, when divorce is rampant in our society today, is the church the first one to give us answers or give us hope or be a friend? Um, when we're having abortion issues is the first one is church is the Christian world the first one we go to for hope or just having the question of what do I do in this situation um, is the Christian world the answer to that and uh, when it comes to domestic violence is the Christian world the answer to that um, the pandemic does the Christian world, world have an answer to that and the large answer is no, because a lot of people have not found the answer or gotten the answer um, that they're looking for, that they're wanting, the hope, the friendship, the relationship that they're wanting. And that's why they're distancing from this God that many Christian leaders have portrayed or talked about over and over and over again. When there is a problem, when there is a need, where are you there for me is a question that many people are asking and when they find that the answer is no then they want to distance themselves from the religion distance themselves from god thinking that this hurt this hopelessness is coming from god and for me going on that journey i had to find out that this distance or these rules and regulations these commandments or these principles that I must follow is not actually coming from God. It is just coming from the people who are enforcing that religion, enforcing a certain type of God. Um, so it takes a lot to reflect. I think number one, realize that 
we have been following a religion or we have been following a institution that was put to us or given to us by somebody's perspective. So we've been looking at this God through someone else's eyes, someone's lens. And the moment we realize that this is not right, um, our gut tells us that something's off, there's a red flag there, then we tend to abandon all faith in God. We tend to abandon all faith in religion and go maybe like the opposite direction or not tend to trust any God or tend to go on this journey of finding another faith at all. And that's when the hurt becomes very real and people contemplate suicide, think about depression, get, go into depression and just act out uh, very abnormally. And this is real, right? This is happening today um, in our culture. But then I think the biggest thing that will help is ask yourself, is it the God who hurt you? Or is it the people representing this institution who hurt you? And if you have that hurt, have you tried to find healing, um, do some critical thinking, do some soul searching? Okay, what does God actually say? Maybe try to read the Bible again without external interpretation without external help at all and then decide for yourself do you still want to follow this god do you still want to be in this faith um, and i think the decision you make after that will say a lot about who you are and will kind of re-identify re reshape your identity for for the better yeah well you you bring up a lot of very interesting yeah. points <laughs> um I don't know if I answered your question at all. No, I, but... I definitely think, okay, so I think you did in a way because I think where I was going with it is you have kind of like two fundamental choices in front of you. It's Marduk, Tiamat, Friedrich Nietzsche, kill God mm. and then try to construct everything out of his remains or it's Genesis, walk with God or at least try to walk with God again, right? Because... In a way, the rest of the Bible is, is all of humanity's attempt to go back to the Garden of Eden. And the death and resurrection of Jesus opens the door back to Eden. But it's not a perfect Eden this side of eternity, right? The perfect Eden, biblically speaking, is that face-to-face -face encounter with God we'll have in heaven. And so we're left with two choices then, right? And I, I think you described it very well in that you are consciously, you've made and you're consciously making the choice to try to walk with God again as as much as one can on this side of eternity, right? Because, and that's always so funny too, when um, I think when Christians say the Bible is um, inerrant, right? It has no error in it. I don't think that's true. Number one, I find errors in the Bible, but I think that makes it more holy, not less holy. Um, because it's like, well, it's like, how can how can any of us say that we actually have this all figured out? Yeah. You know, um, mm. believing what I believe, it's very much so going to be the case that I'm going to get to heaven, stand before Jesus and realize half of my theology was incorrect because I interpreted it wrong. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't make the gospel any less true. And it doesn't make the interpretation of the grace of the cross covering our sins and the power of the resurrection any less yeah powerful any less the reason for salvation mm -hmm. and justification right and so it's like to try to walk with god though is to try to wade through the interpretations mm -hmm. right walking with god isn't 
isn't what it was in Eden. Mm. It's not peaceful, serene, and in a garden anymore. Sometimes it's through the muck and mire of the thorn and thistle the Bible talks about that we're now in inside of the curse, right? And so, but 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 just it's just that, right? Like like you just mentioned, something you said was that yeah. we look to the church for all of these answers to abortion, COVID, all, like all, all of the hot topics, like hot button issues of our day, right? Um, and you said the church no isn't the source of answers on this but i don't know that's a pretty bold statement to make (laughs) i don't know that i agree with you that it's no i think it's not always i don't think the institution not always i don't think the institution has all the answers but i know god sure yeah yeah, yeah. okay um and getting that answer is very difficult uh, because you have to be in close relationship with him almost like talking to your best friend hey can i call you (laughs) talk to you Sometimes it's just like venting out to a friend and getting no answer, but just having this epiphany of, oh my God, I know what to do next. And it's sometimes not always the answer you want to. And I think that's yeah, mm-hmm. that's something okay that, that I think is worth speaking to, right? Dr. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, talks about this in his book, Reason for God, I think. And he talks about if you have a God that you completely agree with on everything, you don't have a God. You have an appliance that you go and you push a button on and it spits out whatever you want, Mm -hmm. right? And so any kind of God, especially a God who exists outside of our dimensional realm, right, who exists in some kind of ethereal heavenly space, should contradict us. The, I guess, degree or the uh, cadence of that contradiction, I guess, is, is different for each individual person. But it's like, I should read the Bible and be offended. And I do, and I am. Like, I do read the Bible and I'm offended, you know, because... Not everything I want to believe about God is in there. Not everything I want to believe about me is in there or other people or the way the world works, you know? And But it's it's having the courage to confront mm-hmm. those things that you disagree with in that effort to try to walk with God again, like Adam and Eve did before the fall in Eden. Now, my conversation with Sharon did continue from here, and there was a point that we stopped talking or rather stopped the recording, but didn't stop talking. And we kept going on and on about some theological topics and what the Bible says and this idea of creation and the equality between men and women. And I ended up hitting record again, and there is so much audio that I need to parse through from this conversation. It was a really, really good one. But I want to be respectful of everyone's time. And so unfortunately, that is going to be the end of this episode. This will be a at least two-part series that I'll be uploading uh, with my conversation between myself and Sharon Angel. So stay tuned for part two. And as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show.